0: Hey, fellow stock Guardians. Today, I have a treat for you. This is one of those special episodes because I have two special guests. You've seen their portfolios, you've seen them on Twitter, you've seen them on YouTube, but now you have a chance to get to know them in person and I'll have all the usual questions and the good questions you're waiting for. So without further ado, uh, Brian Feraldi and Brian Estolfo, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks, Hoda. Great to be here.
0: You both are excellent investors. I've been following your work for many, many uh, years. And uh, that's why we're so excited to have you part of the community. But a little bit um, of introduction in terms of how you started your journey to become such good investors. What is those special moments in your life that you're like, I want to be an investor? Uh, Maybe we start from uh, Brian Stovall. Go ahead.
1: Sure. So um, I was a middle school uh, writing teacher out of college, and that's what I did for six years. Uh, the school I was at had long hours. It was a it was a charter school in the inner, in inner city DC, and uh, it it just it, I couldn't I couldn't keep it up. And my wife was teaching at a similar school, and uh, we decided to take a year off and we moved to Costa Rica. And when We did. I I found investing, and I had never been interested in investing before. Um, I read Warren Buffett's biography, and that's why I started. And the only reason I picked that up was because he was on the board of trustees at the college I went to, tiny Iowa school, Grinnell College. Um, But we were able to have lots of nice things because he did a really good job. It was uh, 1,400 students, and it was like a $2 billion endowment. So I was like, huh, I wonder how he did that. Um, so that, that got my interest peaked and, and you said, you know, what did you do to become a good investor? I, I, I think the answer for everyone is I spent a long time being a bad investor. <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think that's how anyone becomes a better investor. And if I could choose, uh, one one moment, or oh, there were there were two ro- two role models that helped me out. One was David Gardner. He's the co-founder of the Motley Fool, and I really was attracted to his style of investing, and it still plays a huge role in what I do. And the other was I read a book by Nassim Nicholas Taleb called *Antifragile*, and I really. It spoke to me in ways that have nothing to do with investing, but then I also thought I could apply these lessons to investing as well, and that's why my my portfolio on stock card is the anti fragile portfolio, which basically just means things that get stronger over time when they're exposed to unexpected stressors. Um, and once I started building out my portfolio using that idea, that's when I really started seeing some traction with my own returns. So that's that's my 12-year journey in about a minute
0: wow that's so impressive well for so many impressive things in what you said from that endowment and that school all the way to anti-fragile portfolio and framework we're going to dig deep into all of those in a second but Brian Feraldi let me um let me get to you and ask your uh, the same question to you how has your investment journey started and what triggered you to become such a good investor
2: Well, that's debatable whether I'm any good or not, but uh, I'll tell you the journey. Uh, So I first learned about the stock market when I was in high school. My dad, Uh, I was finding these penny stocks. I'm pretty sure he later admitted to me. If you've ever seen the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, there was that company out there that was essentially going out scamming people to buy these penny stocks that were absolute uh, garbage. Well, he was telling me about these stocks. And he said, one of them, he's like, oh, this company's working on a treatment for cancer. And if it goes over $20 per share, uh, we can get a pool or something like that. So I was like watching the stock price every single day. It never got there, not even close. um, uh, but that was my first exposure to investing. And I thought, oh, well, the way that you invest is you would buy these penny stocks, forget Coca Cola, uh, forget Pepsi, forget General Electric. You want to pe- focus on these penny stocks because then you can make a huge return very, very quickly. Uh, so that was my investing style uh, when I first graduated college and had a couple hundred dollars to invest with. Uh, that went terribly. Just terribly, right? I, I got my teeth kicked in a whole lot. And I am so thankful that that's what happened. Because as, as Brian said, the way you become a better investor is by sucking for a long time. Uh, so the reason that I am I ended up developing a checklist. The reason I ended up getting involved with the Motley Fool, the reason I uh, d- grew over time, was I sucked for a long time. I mean, if I was just getting started today, I guarantee you I would be on Robinhood and Wall Street Bets, and that's where I would be going for for stock ideas. But just observing my own behavior and watching uh, many of the same mentors that Brian mentioned, David Gardner, Tom Gardner, um, as well as some other contributors to the Motley Fool, they really shaped the investor that I am today. Over time, I've learned that it's really buying high-quality companies and holding them for a long period of time is kind of like a cheat code to investing. You can actually lower your risk and get higher returns, which in theory sounds like impossible. Uh, So I spend a lot of my time now uh, finding companies, putting them through the framework that I made to judge a company for quality, and then I consistently buy those companies and hold them for long periods of time.
0: Wow, fantastic. I love that. I love that both of you are so humble about how you became a good investor and you all you talk about, oh, I, I was not good at it and I got very good at it. And I think that's that's over the years I've realized all good investors are very humble about their own um, mistakes or the past that they got there and they're sometimes over humble. I guess that helps to you always questioning your own your own thoughts and ideas, and then you kind of keep refining that strategy. So that's super cool. The other anecdote that I want to add is that just the role of multifool in a lot shaping the future of a lot of people. I I love the whole multi community, obviously, as you guys know. And every year I send a cold email to David Garner and just like thank him. I'm like, thanks so much for just creating this passion for all these partners and all the everything. And he he's always so nice to reply back online. line. It's like, cheering for your success and our success too Fulan, he always writes sign in full so yeah he, he is great excellent so Brian Peraldi I just saw actually something on your Twitter uh, you do tons of you both do a great job on Twitter sharing tons of knowledge with your followers in the community I saw something that was very interesting around you don't wait for a pullback and um, you went through explaining, explaining it, but maybe that's a very good um, sort of segue into explaining a little bit more about your investment strategy. Why don't you wait for a pullback? I thought this a really good idea. A lot of people wait for like buy the dip. So what it, what, why don't you like it? It's not that I'm
2: anti-waiting for a pullback, I've kind of learned the hard way this lesson over and over and over again, and that is, if I just really like everything about the company, a company, just get some skin in the game as soon as possible. It is so natural and tempting to say, this stock is up 50% in the last six weeks. This stock's at an all-time high, therefore, I'm going to wait. And if you look back at some of the best-performing stocks in stock Market history, many of them continually set new highs. And if you think back to, say, like uh, 1997 or 1998, that was a great time to buy Amazon, like a phenomenal time to buy Amazon. But if you were always waiting for that dip, uh, you had to wait for uh, you had to wait for a long time. And I have personally seen uh stocks that I was ready to buy, was able to buy, but I did not buy them because the valuation was too high. I said, I can't buy this great company. Look at the PE ratio. It's a hundred. So And then those companies that I was right about went on to multi-bag, like multi-bag from the way too high price. So it's not that I don't buy on pullbacks. I have learned to really de-emphasize valuation. I always look at valuation. Brian doesn't actually, but I always look at valuation and I still have that value bent to me where I want to buy a great company at a great price, but I've learned the hard way over and over again that it's if you find a great company, just get some skin in the game immediately and then continually add to that company over time.
0: Wow. So we should bring Brian Stoffel right now and ask, why don't you look at valuations? Because <laughs> I know it from our uh, from c- talking and speaking with the stock guardians, they're all mostly obsessed with that fair share price bucket that we have on the stock card. And a lot of times people ping us on the live chat we have on the website and they're like, oh, you just started this thing or so-and-so added this stock to their their portfolio with the valuation. Look at the fair share price. I had the same conversation with someone, one of our good followers on Twitter just yesterday about Walmart's valuation. We were talking about valuation. So tell us, I mean, it's it's, it's a really good um, question to ask you why valuation doesn't matter when you look at stocks. So it, it takes
1: a while to explain, but I'll try and condense it. And that is that when, after I read this book, *Antifragile*, there were some basic fundamental things about life that I just realized I had to accept. And once I did, I started realizing that I've learned how to accept this in investing. I still suck at accepting it as like, a parent and a friend and a community member and a sports fan. But the most basic thing is, is that the future really is completely unknowable. And until I became an investor and started applying this, I didn't realize that I had assumed that I, I could control the future or, or, or control the price I paid today based on what's going to happen in the future. The, the basis of fragility is, is that you can be right about what's going to happen tomorrow 99.9% of the time, but that 0.1% of the time that you're wrong is going to matter 100,000 times more than the little bit that being right every other day has counted for. And so what I want to do is I want to own a stock. I want to actually I want to own a company, not a stock. I want to own a company that's the scales are tipped in its favor for when that craziness hits. So I the anti-fragile portfolio had actually done quite poorly, not poorly. It hadn't done as well in from like 2015 to basically 2020. It was beating the market by not by a ton. And then COVID hit. And all the decisions I made in those four years, which basically was like slightly beating the market, became worth it because this thing that nobody could have expected, nobody could have expected, go back to January 1st, 2020, and tell me you were planning for COVID. And if you were, you're a liar. And so, and it paid off. Um, And I don't know if that's what's going to happen the next time, but valuation inherently assumes that you can can assume what's going to happen in the future. And you can 99% of the time. I'm betting on what's going to happen that 1% of the time. And it requires patience, but it's worked out at least once for me now. So so I'm I'm in to testing it again to see how it works out.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, obviously, I, I'm, a, I'm in favor of the anti-fragile portfolio. And I love the work that Nassim Taleb has done. So re- really, I love that you bring that whole framework into your work in investing but let me ask the question, because you said you got influenced by Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett is all about valuation. How did you transition? And I guess it's a question we start from you and then we go to Brian Faraldi right after. How did you transition from Um, sort of like value investing. A lot of us grew up as an investor learning about Warren Buffett and I wanted to be a female version of Warren Buffett. Like I always ask myself, why come, why, how come there's no female Warren Buffett? I'm going to be that one. All that good stuff to kind of getting into where you are in terms of, okay, valuations may not be the best way of looking at it. How did you mentally transition from that framework that valuation is good and Warren buffett said whatever what what Martin Buffett preach into where you are right now
1: so i think it basically comes down to two things one is is that if if you read the snowball which is the autobiography that i read you realize that he was doing a lot of things that nobody else was doing and he was because today we can go on yahoo finance we can go on stock card we can go to the edgar database for the sec filings and we can get all this information but Back then, nobody was going to the library to find all this information. They were they were doing it based off of what their neighbor was doing, which people still do today as well. But you've got professionals who are paid a ton of money to read these things. However, um, today it's just a different landscape. It, it, you're not special if you're reading through these things. There's lots of other people who are doing it. So that's one. And the other, when I went and got, a, I had a six month training at the Motley Fool's headquarters and David Gardner was kind enough to Basically, he invited me to lunch, and we decided we were going to do a six-part series together, kind of capturing how he came up with his investing philosophy, which shares a lot of similarities to what Brian and I both do. And it's very not what Warren Buffett does, and that had a huge effect because I got to understand the reasoning behind it, and then I also got to see the results of it, which were quite convincing as well.
0: That makes a lot of sense uh, to me. Brian Feraldi, what about you? Um, you do look at valuations, as you said a few, um, few minutes ago, but how much, how much value do you put on valuation? And do you have uh, any deviation from what Warren Buffett does and just talk through how your style is different from the, the, the guru of investing? And um, wh- why? why? Why do you not necessarily just follow what Warren Buffett does?
2: Sure. I think that Warren Buffett is, first off, unfairly characterized as a a value investor. Yes, he's the one that has preached forever, buy stocks below their intrinsic value. However, if you look at what, what stocks has Warren Buffett made the most money from? Do you know which one it is? Is it Apple? Apple. He made more money from Apple than like every other. Uh, I think almost every other uh, stock that he's owned combined. It's been an unbelievable investing. And yes, it was a it was a value investment um, uh, at the time. But my favorite thing about Warren Buffett is his mentor, the person he learned everything about valuation from was Ben Graham. Ben Graham was like the classic. He discovered what a business is worth and always pay less than than that. Yet even Ben Graham's portfolio, the only reason he, his portfolio did so well is because he He broke his rule. He put 25% of his portfolio, I think it was 25%, into a growth stock. And that growth stock was Geico. And that one stock went on to deliver an unbelievable return for investors. And when I look back at like Warren Buffett's portfolio, the best investments he's ever made, uh, Seize Candy, uh, Coca-Cola, Apple. what the most important decision that Warren Buffett made was not paying five times earnings or eight times earnings or 15 times earnings. The most important decision he made was to buy and hold great companies, period. And if you go back to when he bought Coca-Cola in 1988 or something like that, even if he paid a 52-week high or an all-time high for Coca-Cola, it would still have been a phenomenal investment at that time. So that just shows me even when studying someone like Warren Buffett who I think is mischaracterized sometimes it's like buying great companies and holding them is infinitely more important than paying the perfect valuation uh, for for those companies. So that general style informs what I do today. I like to think in terms of odds quality and potential. In general, the higher quality the company and the higher the long-term potential is, the less valuation sensitive I am. If I find a billion-dollar company that I think could legitimately be worth $20 billion someday, I'll buy it period. I don't care what the price to sales ratio is. I don't care what the price to earnings ratio is. I'm buying it. The returns are lit- if I think the return is 20x, I'll pay almost any valuation. Conversely, if I find a company that's worth 200 billion. dollars, And I say, well, this could be a four or $500 billion company. That's a 2x return. In that case, I'm going to be much more price sensitive, and I will pay much more attention to the valuation. Overall, the higher the potential, the less valuation sensitive I am, the lower the potential, the more valuation sensitive I am.
0: I love it. Love it. Love that framework. So let's kind of build on top of that framework. And I know uh, the stock audience who are watching uh, this show, they will, they're will they waiting to hear that one stock you're buying right now and why. And uh, how about we take one example, Brian, for all the building on top of the quality framework that you have and just sort of like explain your quality framework with that one example and tell everybody that one stock you buy right now.
2: Sure. So in general, I take a stock through my quality checklist from top to bottom and it forces me to be consistent. It forces me to think through everything. And even if the score at the bottom spits out like a perfect number, that doesn't mean it's going to be a great investment. That just means that according to the checklist that I have developed in its current form, it scores well. And in general, I think taking a company through this checklist and buying the companies that score the best. Increases my odds of success and decreases my odds of unsuccess. Now, with all that in mind, one company that scores very well that I've been buying continuously for the last year or so is Fiverr. Uh, ticker symbol there is F-V-R-R. This is a company that is in the online um, freelance space. So you as uh, you can go on to Fiverr and you can hire somebody to do almost any digital job that you can think of. They have hundreds of categories and they're adding more uh, all the time. Conversely, if you are a freelancer with skills, you can go on Fiverr and sell your skills. To thousands of companies across across the world. When I look at this company, I think the financials are are fantastic. I think it's built a moat for itself. I think it has a tremendous growth runway. It has recurring revenue. It is its um, its customers are very dependent on the platform. I really like the management team. The stock has been a, a winner uh, over the long term, and it, it uh, has very few of the gauntlet the risks that really bust the thesis for me. For example, there's no customer concentration risk. Now, if you look at this stock over the last, say, six months, it hasn't been a pleasant stock to hold. It's been going down. But if you look at the stock since IPO, which was only in 2018 or 2019, it's been a massive, massive winner. So this is a 4 or $5 billion company today. And I could see if this company is successful, it being a 40 or $50 billion company. So one stock that I like a lot is Fiverr.
0: I love it. I own it too, uh, and I, I have to say I bought it when it pulled back, so I waited for the pullback, which is not necessarily a good thing. Following your advice, but it's it's an it's an excellent um, excellent company. Thank you for that. And Brian Estep, let's go with um, your one stock to buy using the anti-fragile framework, and then I have some follow-up questions on Fiverr.
1: Sure. Well, so I'm going to follow the theme of breaking the rules here. Okay. So we talked about Ben Graham did that, Warren Buffett. So Uh, almost everything in my portfolio, not all of it, but most of it scores a 12 or above on my framework, which literally means why don't I own this? Um, So the one, I don't own it yet, but you asked, the one we'll be buying. So the one I'm going to buy, I have some rules because I my work for The Motley Fool about when I can buy and when I can't, but um, is Upstart. Upstart is a company that basically, it's kind of a black box. They've got a lot of artificial intelligence that basically... The elevator pitches, they're trying to replace FICO. And right now they're focused on personal loans to do that. It scored poorly on my framework. One, because it's really hard to know how effective artificial intelligence is in terms of its advantage over someone else's artificial intelligence. Like I'm I'm not a, an engineer or a computer scientist or a data scientist. So like I, I don't completely understand it, but the results convince me there's something there. The big risk had to do with concentration risks. And the more and more time I've spent thinking about it, especially concentration risks from their partnership with Credit Karma, which is owned by Intuit, the more and more I'm convinced that I feel comfortable with it. But I'll also put out there that I still am aware of that risk. And so I'm going to position that accordingly. Like I'm not going over 1% of my portfolio with this, but that is the stock that I will be buying. It scored a seven, so it's still investable. It's still in that anti-fragile portfolio on stock card because of that. But uh, usually those aren't the first to make it in. This one I've given some thought to. And so and so I'm going to break my own rule there.
0: Wow. Rule breaker for life. That's good. That's excellent. I love it. Um, I mean, it's an excellent company. You guys both did one of your um, sort of like putting the stock on the chopping block before Upstart. And I remember you talk about Craig karma and the risk there. So actually, I have this question I ask all of the stock picks, and maybe I start from you, Brian, and then go back to Brian Froldi about Fiverr. So if the stock you buy today goes down 20% tomorrow, how do you deal with the emotional sort of like panic moment? I was like, oh my God, 20% less. Like, how do you talk yourself through this? emotional reaction that I have all the time. I have to be honest, then the stock I buy goes down, I, I have a moment of panic, and then I have to like talk myself out of it. <laughs> how do you deal? Do you actually have that kind of panic at all? And then how do you deal with that emotional reaction and stay put?
1: I, I definitely used to have that reaction. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, and this is an unsatisfying answer because it's I, I've been through that so many times. And so many times I've realized that not doing anything was by far, by far the best thing to do. So today, that's actually quite easy for me. And, and, and then I also, I remind myself, this isn't money that I need for, for, for me, maybe 25 years. I don't care. I just don't care. If the business is still doing well, I just don't care about the stock in the short term.
0: That's good. That's simple. Simple rule to follow. It's very hard to follow though. I know that, but it just comes with experience to your point of like, you've been through this cycle so, so many times that now it's sort of meant in your brain. It's basically ingrained and don't worry about it. It, If the business is good, it's going to come back.
1: It's it's cellular. It's like it's in there.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's ingrained in your DNA. Now you are an investor with an investment DNA now already. (laughs) That's awesome. So, Brian, probably some questions similar, but I guess let me put it this way. So, you buy fiber, it goes down 20%, you're good. You're like, I've seen it so many times, it's going to happen, it's it's okay. And then they release their earning, and then it's going to go down another 20%. (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) Exactly. So how do you go? How do you deal with, do you have any other beyond investment, creating an investment DNA in your brain? uh, What else would you do in terms of uh, dealing with that double, double, I guess, dip?
2: Yeah, I've owned plenty of stocks that have gone down a lot in a very short period of time. And if I could go, I mean, I've been lucky. That I've been an investor in Tesla for about ten years or nine years, and an investor in Netflix for about uh, for about uh, for about ten years, and those two companies alone have given me the armor (laughs) to know that what matters in the long term is business quality. What matters in the short term is sentiment. That that's it. I mean, if you uh, I owned Netflix throughout a, I think it was eighty-eight percent peak to trough drop. 80, like it was almost 90% drop. And the entire time, if you just watch Netflix's business, uh their their growth was was pretty consistent. They dropped huge when they rolled out uh, Quickster, which was a DVD, but they were separating their business and they were raising prices 60%. Wall Street freaked out. Um, And if you just had the wherewithal to know, well, if you actually look at the business results, uh, the business results are not a 90% decline in revenue, not a 90% decline in profits. Yes, the stock price went down 90%, but the business is continuing to to grow. Um, So I was lucky enough, smart enough to be able to buy uh, after that big decline. But when I see something like that happening with a company like Fiverr, I always go, all right, what do we know? I go back to the most recent earnings report and I say, well, revenue was up, margin stable, profits up. They're launching new businesses. They have new partnerships in place. Thesis on track. That gives me the, weather, the wherewithal to say, well, I don't care what happens to the stock price. Um, I look at declines as uh, opportunities to add, not opportunities to freak out. Conversely, if I look at, the, look at an earnings report, Revenue was down, they were losing market share, margins were deteriorating, different story. I would say, all right, this stock deserves to be down, and I am wrong, and therefore, I need to sell it. Uh, So I always try and teach people, focus on the business, not the stock. That's a really easy thing to say. It's a really hard thing to do
0: yeah yeah i agree it's just because when emotion gets involved logic it's hard to step back and be logical but to your both of you points of going through these cycles a few times then you can actually just give yourself a mental stop mental break and like okay let's go through it logically so let me build on top of that we have a few minutes and we do want to make sure to capture all of your um points here um, using your quality framework, uh, what is one stock that you don't want to buy and why?
1: It, and bought?
0: Uh, I, yeah, one stock that you don't want to buy when, why.
1: Oh, oh, and why. Got it, got it. So uh, I'll, I'll go first. Mine, um, in fact, I said this to Brian after we ran this, and I, I hope I don't get a lot of hate mail for this because I know it's popular in some areas of the investing community, but it's context logic, which is ticker symbol W-I-S-H or Wish, um, just the more and more I I dug into it, it, it scored poorly on my framework. I'm pretty sure it scored poorly on Brian's too. Um, the more and more I said, I I don't want to have anything to do with this stock. Um, and so far I've been right. I think it's down about 40% since when we did it. But uh, boy, that's one that I, there, there are other stocks. Like we. I could just mention like App Harvest. I, I'm not going to invest in it but I want them to succeed, like I truly do. And I don't want Wish to fail, but I'm also just like, I, I don't really
2: care either way. That's,
0: I'll just, that's good. Yeah, go ahead, Brian, sorry.
2: I'll just call an entire category of stocks that I think are uninvestable. And that is anything that does anything with fossil fuels. Uh, I think the next 20 years, we are, we're absolutely gonna be using fossil fuels 20 years from now there's no doubt about it but I think the economics of fossil fuels are finished uh, solar wind renewables battery technology is all advancing so unbelievably rapidly that the economics of oil and fossil fuel uh, though it's just going to be it's just going to be over uh, there might be some uh, stocks in the fossil fuel industry that you could pick off and get lucky at there also might be a, a, a surge in oil prices at some time down the road however for me as an investor I want absolutely no exposure at all to anything related to fossil fuels.
0: Makes sense to me. Thank you for that uh, conviction there. And it's so strong that I can follow you <laughs> right now. <laughs> all right. So we're at the end of the podcast our episode and we do it in a podcast and we do it in YouTube. So I always say uh, show, I guess. Um, and the last question I have for you is um, where people can find you and what is your plan uh, for your portfolio and stock card?
2: You can find us on my YouTube channel. It's Brian uh, Feraldi. We're also both active on Twitter. I'm at Brian Feraldi. He's Brian underscore Stofel underscore or something. Something, you got along, oh, something along those lines. Um, But one of the reasons we were so excited to partner with StockCard is we wanted a way to keep ourselves accountable. Uh, We are both big believers in accountability and scorekeeping, and that is what we are using StockCard to do. We have four portfolios uh, set up, two of ours that stocks that meet our criteria, two of ours that don't meet uh, our criteria. So whenever we take a stock through our checklist and it scores one way or the other, that's where we put it. And it's very possible that the stocks we don't invest in could outperform the stock that we do. And if that's the case, that is going to be a learning experience uh, for both of us. My framework is constantly evolving. I don't claim that it's perfect or it's right or anything like that. In fact, the only reason that it's gotten better over time is because I have failed. So uh, I'm going to continually look at stock cards, see what stocks are doing well, what stocks are not, and hopefully learn lessons that I can use to become a better investor.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for that. And your f- portfolios, I think the followers in the stock carding community recognize that because all four portfolios are one of the fastest in terms of from zero follower to hundreds of followers. They went in a matter of three days to that status and rapidly people are following it. So we're so grateful to our community that they understand this whole value of accountability and tracking uh, investment decisions. Thank you for that, Brian Feraldi. Brian Sopho, do you want to add anything, any last advice uh, to the stock gardening community?
1: The only other thing I'll add is just that Brian and I think accountability is really important. In fact, it's one of the, the most important things because it's something that doesn't exist in 99% of, of, of the finance media. Um, but at the same time, there's a caveat, which is that we also believe that it takes three to five years to find out if an investment that we've made or that we've suggested, or that we put in our stock car portfolio was a good one or not. Um, There are, to, to Brian's point, we could have invested in Netflix right before Quickster happened, and the business continued to perform pretty well. The stock dipped quite a bit, but if we stayed invested for three to five years at a minimum, clearly it was a good decision. We are going to be judging ourselves the same way. So come 2024, that's when we can start drawing some conclusions.
0: Makes a lot of sense, yeah. I'm very excited for can't wait for that 2024. To like you know, we have you guys like five years here, 10 years here, and then we're like, okay, look at that beautiful run and how these two portfolios, four portfolios perform. So, let's wrap it up. I'm really beyond excited to have you on the stock cards community and stock cards. uh stock picks page and i'm one of the ones that always on your show when you have the tuesdays and thursdays i'm like let's go let's go the live stream thank you for all the good quality content you put out there uh we'll put the link to all of your work in the show notes and the stock guardians can follow follow you we also have the link on your portfolio so people know where to find you and uh hopefully we can have you come back on this show uh very time uh, very soon
1: we'd love to hoda thank you for for all the the building of stock card.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's my passion. Thanks. Thank you so much. And uh, have a great day. I know you guys got to go and uh, stream. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up and uh, see you on the other window, I guess, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Thanks, Hoda. Great to see you.
0: Good to see you. Bye. Bye.